If you listen to this podcast, then you already know that I think we give non-European cultures the short end of the stick. Many times we think of them as undeveloped, backwards, and uncivilized. It's like the Europeans show up, pull back the curtain, and enlighten civilizations that were previously unknown to them. There is great merit to exploring the world, though it's just as important to realize many cultures thrived before the world became so small. Today, we're exploring the Native American Choctaw. They developed a written language, developed farming techniques, and shared the importance of women in tribal affairs long before gender equality was ever coined. Listen to today's summary as we explore the Choctaw tribes. I'm Scott Parrish, and you're listening to Dying to Eat, the podcast that delves into different cultures of the world throughout time exploring different attitudes about death and food. If you love history, food, and fascinating stories, then I have a great show in store for you. So make sure you stick around to the end to see what's cooking this week. Also, a big shout out to TheTailoredHemp.com. TheTailoredHemp.com has been our sponsor since the beginning of this podcast, and I greatly appreciate their support. I, as many of you, suffer from anxiety, and I stand by that high-quality CBD helps ease those symptoms. Healthline states CBD oil has been studied for its potential role in easing symptoms of many common health issues, including anxiety, depression, acne, and heart disease. For those with cancer, it may even provide a natural alternative for pain and symptom relief. If you think this may be an answer for you, please visit the tailoredhemp.com online and let them know Scott sent you. Now, on with the show. Today's episode takes us down to Mississippi, or at least where Mississippi and southern Alabama stand today. The history of the Choctaw Nation, a once massive and friendly people that became bitterly divided and stand as three separate tribes. This story began around 1700 years ago. The Hopewell were the predecessors for the Choctaw and they built a great earthwork mound in the central Mississippi area. There are several reasons to build a mound. It can give you a landmark, a fortification, or have sacred meaning. Some of these raised in effigy or for religious ceremonies. Based on oral history, archaeologists believe that this mound was erected in memory of ancestors whom were brought with the first Choctaw settlers. The bones of the deceased were said to outnumber those of the living. They picked this spot as they had been wandering the wilderness for 42 green corn festivals, and a magic staff indicated that this was their destination. When, the finished, when they finished, they celebrated what was said to be the green corn festival, the 43rd. In accordance with tradition, they built smaller mounds surrounding the largest primary mound as single burial sites. Unfortunately, these smaller mounds have been degraded. Some were sown into fields. Regardless, they just don't exist today. Though still today, this is considered an area of pilgrimage where the Choctaw can commune with the spirit world. The Spanish explored this area in, six, in the 16th century and found the Choctaw had coalesced into a culture of villages ruled by chiefs. These river people, as it's believed by their name, is derived by the mid-1700s had populated the banks of the Pearl, Chickasaway and the Pasigula rivers. They built cabins with thatched roofs. They plastered walls with mud and became very skilled at agriculture. 
They were noted for harvesting maize, beans of many sorts, as well as pumpkins, nuts, and fruits native to the area. Agile hunters brought deer and bear back to the villagers, and of course, every summer, they celebrated the Green Corn Festival to mark the beginning of the growing season. Growing relationships with Europeans brought more to the table as these Native Americans traded for livestock and other goods. The Choctaw were landowners and prosperous as a people. The French and Indian War began in 1754. This was a disagreement between British and French colonists. Some see this as a theater of a bigger war being fought by the nations in Europe. That was called the Seven Years' War. Many campaigns were fought and Native American tribes were instrumental on both sides. The Choctaw sided with the French. Ultimately, the French ceded its territory east of the Mississippi to the British, firmly planning the Brits as the dominant colonial empire in North America. For the Choctaw, this meant losing land that had been claimed by victors and forcing the Native Americans west in search of new land to settle. The tribe remained strong and continued to do well regardless of the losses they had taken. Unfortunately, the battle was not over and the period of the early 1800s marked the beginning of Western expansion. Now, Western expansion in the United States was derived by manifest destiny. Manifest destiny is defined as the wide cultural belief that was held by settlers of the time and would expand that they should and they would expand across the continent. It was sometimes described as a duty to make the West reflect the East of our country and the people had an inalienable right to that unsettled land. Not to get sidetracked, though I have wondered if Manifest Destiny still lingers in our modern culture as we have groups of people that seem determined that anyone that doesn't align with their views in society, government, or bias must be wrong and must come to terms and acceptance of these views. So, Manifest Destiny is one of these ideals that drove settlers from the East to settle to the West. Many leaders, such as Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant, rejected it. Some believed it was a way to justify the genocide of Native Americans. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. I digress. In the early 1800s, the Choctaws began to, six, been, began to cede the land to the U.S. in an attempt to not lose all of it. The United States government purchased land, well, I will say acquired to forego any argument on that point, from the Choctaw and the Chickasaw in exchange for land west of the Mississippi River. You see, this land was fertile and coveted because it was ripe to grow cotton. This fit in with the federal government's policy of Indian removal. The Choctaw signed the Treaty of Doak's Stand in October 18, 1820. Andrew Jackson was one of the primary negotiators. The Choctaw gave around 5 million acres, or about one-third of their holdings, and received 13 million acres in the Arkansas Territory, the Indian Territory, which are now Oklahoma, and the southwestern area of Arkansas that was known as Spanish Texas. The Choctaw gave up around 5 million acres, or about one-third of their holdings, and received 13 million acres in the Arkansas Territory, the Indian Territory, which is now part of Oklahoma, and the southwestern area of Arkansas that was known as the that was known as Spanish Texas. The Choctaw signed the treaty 
stipulating that each tribal member would receive a rifle, bullet mold, camp kettle, and blanket, as well as a year's worth of ammunition for hunting and defense, and a year's worth of corn for his family. A condition was included that any Native American that was a traditional hunter for substance, instead of working in the ways of white men, would have to move. It also made whiskey trade with the Choctaw illegal as it established a presence of law enforcement. Any Choctaw that did want to adopt the ways of the white man and become a substance farmer would become a U.S. citizen. The treaty provided federal aid for education and humanitarian aid. I'm guessing from the perspective of the white fledgling nation, this seemed like a pretty good trade. I can't imagine how the Choctaw would ever agree to this. They had generations of investment in the land. What followed wasn't any better. September 27, 1830. The Choctaw were forced to sign the Treaty of Dancing Rapids. This treaty was the first removal treaty under the Indian Removal Act. Andrew Jackson, as the U.S. president, oversaw the relocation of Native Americans to the west of the Mississippi River so that white settlers could move to the natives' ancestral lands. Unsuccessful attempts were made by the Cherokee, but nothing halted the great American machine of the federal government. Based on this treaty, the Choctaw gave up 11 million acres in exchange for 15 million acres in present-day Oklahoma. The Choctaw were recognized as the first of the five civilized tribes, and while some remained in their homeland, in 1831, thousands made the journey to the new land. You may have heard this as the Trail of Tears, and sadly, many died. Now let's look at that, the Trail of Tears. I think back to when I learned about it in junior high or high school. It's when a bunch of Indians walked from their teepees in the southern United States to find new homes and houses that were built for them in Oklahoma, right? Well, first, teenage Scott, that is seriously racist. And how the heck did you ever pass high school history with thoughts like that? Let's go a little bit further back. George Washington, first president and father of our nation referred to the fear and distrust of Native Americans by European settlers as the Indian problem. His resolution was to simplify the sim and civilize the savages or bring them into the fold of society by teaching them European customs, converting them to Christianity, and teaching them English. In some cases, the goal was even to have Native Americans own slaves, as it was acceptable as a custom of that time. The Choctaw, as well as the Chickasaw, Seminole, Creek, and Cherokee, embraced many of these Western customs, thus popularly becoming known as the Five Civilized Tribes. Unfortunately, this didn't make matters any easier. You see, the ancestral lands laid in what is now Tennessee, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, and North Carolina. White settlers and businessmen could see the value of the land for crops and other business opportunities. This led to fighting and struggle between the groups, sometimes culminating in the destruction of property, death of livestock, and sometimes even the death of people. There was a drive to push out the natives, and President Andrew Jackson signed the Indian Removal Act in 1830. I want to take a moment here to note Andrew Jackson was definitely the bad guy here though we probably will be covering him in a future episode as he was a very interesting guy that needs his own due credit. So, 
The Indian Removal Act gave the U.S. government the right to exchange Native American land that exists east of the Mississippi for land that was west of the river, land that was acquired during the Louisiana Purchase. Now, not everyone was on board with this stream of thought. Most notably may have been Davy Crockett, who was a Tennessee congressman at the time. He debated in favor of the tribes, though, as history shows it, it was to no avail. The act passed, and President Jackson was quoted as, Progress requires moving forward. Now, this forced move of the Choctaw had implications I doubt anyone could have seen coming. Nearly 15,000 Choctaw made the migration to what is, was then called Indian Territory over a three-year period. Around 2,500 died on the walk. Around 6,000 elected to stay in Mississippi. Those that stayed suffered atrocities like their houses being burned, fences destroyed, and being personally abused, including some even dying. They were considered the scourge of society. So much for becoming more like the Europeans, or on a personal note, maybe they did when you consider the centuries of fighting between the countries on that continent. Maybe one of the most remarkable points to note is that Indian Removal Act continued until 1903 when 300 Choctaw were persuaded to leave Mississippi for Oklahoma. Another interesting fact is the Choctaw chose the site of the Confederacy during the United States Civil War. The Confederates suggested that Mississippi would be under the control of Native Americans if they won the war. Now, there's a lot to unravel there, such as Mississippi had more slaves in 1860 than it did free men. We aren't going down that trail right now. The takeaway I have for you now is that after the Civil War, the Oklahoma Choctaw no longer considered the Mississippi Choctaw to be part of the Choctaw Nation, or as it was called at that point, the Choctaw Republic. Now, the Choctaw are divided into three different bands now or three different groups, the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians, the Jenna Band of Choctaw in Louisiana, and the Choctaw Nation in Oklahoma. While disagreement and debate have divided its people, each tribe has made its place in history. The Mississippi tribe became the third largest employer in the state and touted less than 3% unemployment among its members in 1997, as well as the return in 2008 of their celebration of Nina Waya, the celebration of the ancestors at the earthwork mounds that we covered at the beginning of this episode. The Jenna Band of the Choctaw have a reservation in Grant Parish, Louisiana. Their membership is around 300. I couldn't find a lot of information on them. There are, they are a uh, democracy that is comprised of a chief and four council members. Currently, the entire governing body is made up of women. Businesses highlighted by my research include the Baby Feathers Learning Center, Miko's Steak and Spirits, and Jenna Choctaw Pines Casino. The 46,000 square foot facility includes gaming machines, live poker, buffet, and a sports bar as well as regular live entertainment. I'm not much of a gambler, though I might have to go visit that steakhouse. I checked out their menu online. You can get a steak with fries and vegetables for 12 bucks. Man, that sounds like a pretty good deal to me. The Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma is the third largest federally recognized tribe in the U.S. 
with over 200,000 members. The nation is governed by the Choctaw Nation Constitution, ratified in 1984. The chief is elected every four years, and a 12-person council runs the whole show. The judiciary branch of their government consists of three members appointed by the chief. The Choctaw Nation has been very successful at building and maintaining infrastructure that includes fire stations, EMS units, law enforcement, as well as business. Seven casinos, 14 smoke shops, 13 truck stops, Chili's restaurant franchises, a printing company, hospice care, and metal, metal fabrication are all among the businesses that they own. The nation even built its own self-funded hospital, the Choctaw Nation Health Center. Now, we've covered a lot of information and still haven't gotten to the death or eating part of this episode. I still can't move forward without talking about the Choctaw Code Talkers. You see, in World War I, the American army was fighting in France. The Germans seemed to intercept and decrypt the Americans' codes at every turn. At that time, several Choctaw were serving in the 142nd Infantry and were deployed to France. Colonel Alfred Bleuer overheard some of them talking and determined that if he couldn't understand them, neither could the Germans. The colonel replaced the military code with Choctaw language. Later, after successful missions and the capture of a German officer, it was confirmed that the Germans' wiretaps were, quote, completely confused by the Indian language and gained no benefit whatsoever. Choctaw were placed in each of the U.S. Army companies in the battalion to intercept and move information, and they did it with great success. We really know very little about these code talkers after the return home from war, but I, for one, am very grateful for their contributions and their sacrifices for our nation. So, let's get into the Choctaw beliefs of death and the rituals that surround it. Just as with every other aspect of their culture, death was sacred and planned out. Their traditions were unique to them, and we will see that they still retain some of the practices today, though not without Western influence. The entirety of the ritual centers around the idea of closure, both physically and psychologically. The end of the mourning period, the individual is never spoken of again, and members of the tribe are meant to move on with their lives without the oppressive weight of grief-bearing. When the person passes, there are a number of steps that must be taken. First, a fire is lit either at the spot of the death, when possible, or directly outside that person's house. It is the responsibility of all family members to make sure that the fire continues to burn. The fire serves a spiritual purpose for those who have passed, but we're going to discuss that more in a minute. For the living, tending the fire for four days straight gives them time to start processing their grief. After the four days passed, the four-month-long mourning period began. Those close to the deceased did not participate in any celebrations during that time and dressed minimally. They did not wear any jewelry or anything else that would enhance their appearance. They were not entirely separated from society, but they did deny themselves recreational activities as part of uh, as rest of the community took part in, in those other activities. Right after the person died, the men responsible uh, for helping built a scaffold 
30 feet from the person's residence. The scaffold was essentially a small hut that sometimes had walls and windows or could be as simple as a platform. Regardless of the complexity of the structure, it was placed on stilts that were raised at least four feet off the ground. This height was necessary because the body would be placed inside the scaffold for the entirety of the mourning period and had to be kept away from animals who would try to desecrate it. While the men were building, it was the responsibility of the women to thoroughly wash the body and dress it in its finest clothes. They would also gather some of the favorite items of the person to be placed in the scaffold during the mourning period. It was believed that these items would go to the afterlife with the soul. Once the scaffold was complete, the body would be placed inside along with the items. A fence was put up around the base to keep small animals as well as children out of it. A bench was placed facing the east where the family members and the friends could sit and they could mourn and think about the passing. It was customary that any visitors of the family would take time out of the visit to sit on the bench and mourn as well. Now, when I say that the mourning period lasted four months, this represents more of an average. For members of the tribe that were higher nobility, mourning periods might last even twice that long. This time was meant to heal all those affected by the death that afterwards they could live in peace. So, if the healing process took more than four months, then so be it. The mourning lasted as long as it needed to. The end of the period was determined by the Nafoni Awa, or the bone pickers. They were distinct members of society that were mostly men, but it was not altogether uncommon to see women in the role as well. They were marked distinctly by tattoos on their body and their long nails, specifically on the thumb, the index, and middle fingers. They would gather anyone who was mourning the death to, the, uh, to a big cry. It was one last wail in honor of the deceased, both to solidify their memory as well as to let go. Afterwards, the mourners would sing traditional hymns while the bone pickers ascended into the scaffold. It was their job to remove any remaining flesh from the body and to pull out the bones. This may seem really gross to us today, but really, how different is it than, say, our current embalming process? The average person today would not enjoy spending that much time close up with a dead body, and it takes a special kind of person to be willing to do it. The same is true with the Choctaws, which is why they had designated members of the community that would perform these tasks. Once all the bones were removed, they were cleaned thoroughly, and the skull was painted red. Then everything was placed in a box and sealed. While that was happening, the scaffold was set on fire and burned to ash. Some tribes burned the remaining flesh with the scaffold and the deceased favorite items as well. Others chose to bury the flesh in the ground near the house. Everyone at the big cry would then head to a feast held by the family members, and each person was served by the bone pickers. This celebration was a joyous, joyous one, even though it was still a little bit somber. It was meant to be a refresh and reset for the mourners to signify the true end of their grief. Afterwards, the family members alone would take the box of the bones and travel to their family Carnell House. Now, Carnell House is a building or a burial vault. This was also a platform built six feet above the ground, and it contained boxes of all the family members that had died before. They were shaped like rectangles with walls 
on the shorter ends and a roof on the top. The long ends were left open. Whenever charnel houses filled up, the men of the family would remove the boxes and pile them together nearby, burying them under enough dirt to keep them safe. For most communities, this was the end of the process, and the deceased was never to be spoken of again. Others, however, engaged in what was known as the Celebration of the Dead Day, either annually in November or semi-annually. Families would go to the to the charnel houses and remember all that they had uh, all the people that it contained inside. Death culture is not only about physical process, but also about spiritual ones as well. Earlier I mentioned that the fire had a second purpose. It was meant to warm the spirit of those that passed, to keep them from becoming angry and spiteful about their own ending. The Choctaws believed that every person had spirits or shalup and a shadow or a Shilom Bish. This Shilom Bish was, is what allowed them to experience dreams as it traveled while they slept. It was only in death that both parts left the body forever. The Shilup, or spirit, was destined to walk around the earth for years, tormented and similar to what we think of as a ghost today. The Shilom Bish, or the shadow, however, was meant to travel to the land of the ghost. In order for this to happen, the shadow had to be willing to go, let go of the physical world, and the fire was lit in its honor, allowed it that exactly to happen. Unfortunately, as I explained earlier, the Choctaw people were subjugated to the Trail of Tears, and their death rituals suffered for it. When they were first being removed from their land, anyone who was in the middle of the mourning period decided to stay and finish, as was their right. This may have contributed to the number of the Choctaw people that, that stayed in Mississippi and that are still there today. Over time, though, the bone-picking ritual fell out of practice and was instead replaced by the pull-pulling ritual. The leaders of this new ceremony were the bone-pickers, still seen as a symbol of death rights in the community. The deceased was buried in a sitting position and six red poles are placed around the body. One pole was slightly larger than the others and a white flag was put on top. After the mourning period ended, the poles were pulled out of the ground and everyone attended a feast. The pull-pulling ceremony lasted until around the 1980s. After that, for both, the Mississippi and Oklahoma tribe burials tended to model after American ones, with a church service, burial, and then a reception with food. One aspect that differs from Western tradition is that the Choctaws break the deceased dishes over the gravestone so that no other person is able to use them. This is reminiscent of setting the scaffolds on fire with the deceased favorite items. Personally, I think that having a dedicated mourning period to heal grief is beautiful. Maybe we should lend ourselves to such focused healing. Now for the part I know that you're all dying for, this episode's recipe. The Choctaws relied on what they could to grow and hunt around them. This included corn, beans, pumpkins, nuts, fruit, fish, and deer. Once the Europeans started to interact with the Choctaw, there was more diversity in their diet, largely due to the fact that they were so willing to trade with others. That's why that there are some ingredients in this recipe that they're not likely to have pre-contact, like goat's milk. 
Corn fritters are a great southern treat, and you may be surprised to know that they began around a Choctaw fire. For this recipe, you're going to need one and a half cups of all-purpose flour, one teaspoon baking powder, one half teaspoon baking soda, two cups of corn, that's about three cobs, two eggs, and half a cup of heavy cream. You're going to want to mix the flour, baking powder, and baking soda together. Then stir in the corn and make sure it is well coated in the mixture. Then take a separate bowl and beat the eggs before adding the cream and mixing it all together. Then pour the liquid into the dry mix and make sure it all gets nice and incorporated. To cook them, all you have to do is heat up a pan with oil, making sure that there's enough to completely submerge your fritters. Drop in about a teaspoon size amount of the batter and cook it until it's golden brown. As good as they smell, try to be patient and cook in batches. Don't overcrowd your pan. Now here's a second bonus recipe that you can use on top of the other. And you're going to need 8 ounces of goat cheese, 8 tablespoons of mayo, 2 tablespoons of honey, 1 tablespoon of apple cider vinegar, 1 teaspoon of minced fresh basil. Put all of the ingredients in your blender and mix them until they're smooth. It's just that easy. Just remember to refrigerate until you're ready to serve it. I've been your host, Scott Parrish, and I'd like to thank you for listening to Dying to Eat. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode in learning about the intense and dramatic history of the Choctaw people. This show is made possible by listeners like Utaibi, Mamo Rose, and Sharon Farmville. Your support drives the show, and we enjoy hearing from you. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. Let us know what topics you'd like to hear. Find future and past episodes on your favorite podcast platforms. Make sure to drop us a like, a five-star rating, and a comment. And until next time, stay lively.